Welcome to the How to Be an Author in Australia podcast. This is a podcast for writers who want to become published authors. We promise to go behind the scenes in the book industry, talking to people who love books just as much as we do. I'm Georgia Richter, and this is my co-host, Claire Miller. Hey, Georgia. And later, we'll be joined by the comma chameleon who will hit us with a quiz from the editing world. Claire, what's coming up today? Today we're going to be talking all things bookshops. Our special guest will be Leanne Hall of Readings in Melbourne. And the reason we've actually got a bookseller that's a quality indie store is because they just have so many different aspects to their business. I think you're right. I think Readings is really the quintessential modern bookstore. Yeah, we really want to give writers a sense of what it is that bookstores do and how important it is for them to be a part of the bookshop community. So, Claire, are you having a relationship with a local bookstore? (laughs) I am. New edition. I go down there every six weeks. I look hot when I walk in the store because every six weeks I also get a haircut and then I walk two doors down to new edition and hang out with them and I'm the annoying customer that sits cross-legged on the floor and only looks at the bottom shelf. But I I love bookshops actually where you can sit on the floor. I think it's important to be comfortable in a bookshop and I also like it when the bookseller knows your name. So, Claire, I've been in your house (laughs) and you have a beautiful arrangement on your bookshelves. The last time I saw it was it was the spectrum. The colour spectrum. How do you choose what do you want what you want to read? Do you choose by the colour of the cover? I actually had this period where I just chose by colour and it was because I could not find a book that I really loved from just reading the blurb. So I thought, stuff it, I'm just going to go into new edition. I'm going to choose everything that's hot pink and I'm going to walk out of the store with hot pink books. And it was one of the best things I've ever done because I got this diverse range of authors. I got people from Africa and Japan and all over the world. And so it really broadened my horizons in terms of what I was reading. Um, And so then I tried Neon Yellow. So I've heard quite a lot of naughty stories about authors who are very excited by having their book in a bookshop and they go in and they put it face out or they move it so it's much more prominent. I guess you've heard those stories too. Um, I do this exactly the same thing as a publisher and booksellers know that you're doing that. Um, but there are some lines you shouldn't cross as a writer. You really shouldn't be demanding to know why your book isn't on the shelf. Um, often it probably is on the shelf. It might be in the wrong spot or in the spot that you don't expect, for instance. Um, so be nice to your local booksellers, everybody. Um, I know that with Kelly Camby, she's got this really great um, highlights video on our Instagram at the moment at Fremantle Press where she's gone into Dimit Subiaco and videoed this and said to the girl, um, have you got any good books for ages naught to five? Here's a good book as she pulls out Little Light and puts it into the camera. Here's a good book. Kind of getting her to recommend her own her own title. Kelly's also known for making fake recommendations up and putting them out under the book. So you mean like rec- shelf talkers? Yeah, like a shelf talker recommended by the by the bookseller, <laughs> things like that. That's, that's pretty beautiful. crafty. That is crafty and creative, which you'd expect from writers. And I sometimes suspect that booksellers actually know a lot more about what the author is doing than the author thinks they do. Yeah, I don't think you can just creep in. I think I think people do know. Let's zoom up Leanne Hall and ask her then. Leanne Hall is an author of young adult and children's fiction. Her debut YA novel, This Is Shyness, won the Tex Prize for Children's and Young Adult Writing, and her novel for younger readers, Iris and the Tiger, won the Patricia Wrightson Prize for Children's Literature. 
Leanne works as an online children's and YA specialist at the Independent Bookshop Readings. Hello and welcome. Hi. Look, new authors sometimes believe that you're just sitting in the back of the shop drinking whiskey, being rude to customers (laughs) and reading books. Um, What does a real day in the life of a bookseller look like? Um, there's kind of more of an office environment, which has marketing and buying. There's also the warehouse that's got receiving mail order, online order. For me, I'm mostly based in the office, which means at home at the moment, but um, can mean our head office. There is a lot of coffee drinking, I won't lie. Uh, A lot of coffee drinking, a lot of cake eating, and just eight hours of either talking about books or having your head down over a computer. Yeah, and I have also worked a lot in the shop floor and the typical day would involve some shelving, some tidying, some a lot of talking to customers um, because I'm a kid specialist, a lot of speaking to young children, grandparents, parents, librarians. It's one of the most balanced jobs I can think of really. It does sound lovely to be surrounded by books. Uh, when when oh. Claire and I lived in Melbourne, my local was Readings in Carlton and Claire's was Ackland Street in St Kilda, but there are more reading oh, stores, aren't there? There are, yeah. We've got quite a few shops now. So there's Malvern, St Kilda, Hawthorne, the State Library, Carlton. We've got a separate kids' shop now, which is next door to our Carlton store. Um, and we've got a Doncaster shop, which is... Um, more of a, a shopping centre environment, which was really new for us to go into a Westfield shopping centre and have a shop there. Um, but it's a beautiful shop and, and does really well. And what are you doing to adjust to COVID? Are you concentrating more on the website uh, side of the business at the moment? Uh, it's sort of a, a balance, really. We've just pretty much had to roll with the punches. No one has ever experienced this situation before. So we really just had to make things up as we went, try to make really wise decisions, pedal as fast as possible. So at the moment, it's predominantly an online environment. People are either uh, buying books through our website. They're also emailing orders, phoning through orders. We still have a few old school customers that love to mail orders in. Um, So that's something that still happens, which is just gorgeous. Um, and we're also operate, um, offering a click and collect um, service from from all of our shops, but that is definitely restricted by the government restrictions. So customers have to be within a five kilometre radius. So it's a real hodgepodge. We also experimented with local deliveries via bike. Uh, Mark Rubo was showing up on people's doorsteps um, with bags full of books. Um, so yeah, it's been a real mix. We've just had to adapt to every single stage of the situation. Aspiring writers may wonder how it is that a published book actually finds its way into a bookshop. Can you describe this process for us and whether or not that process differs for a self-published writer? Yeah, so it is a little bit different. Readings does take books on consignment, which means that we do stock um, quite a few self-published books. Um, I work predominantly in the kids and YA environment. There's some really, really beautiful self-published books done for children and teenagers these days. I would say in the past, maybe people didn't seem as savvy about the design and production side of self-publishing, but that has actually really, really changed in the last couple of years. People are very, very savvy about their self-publishing in the kids and YA area. In terms of an aspiring writer knowing how a book arrives in our shop, obviously for a lot of aspiring writers, you know, their real focus is trying to get 
published and trying to get their first book published. But once the publisher gets the book ready, they will have a distribution arrangement with somebody. They might have their own distributor. If they're a smaller publisher, they might um, have a distribution arrangement with a larger distributor. Um, That distributor will usually have sales reps. And basically, um, I think the most awful thing that an aspiring writer could ever see is one of the um, sell-in meetings or buy-in meetings that we do with reps where a rep will trot through uh, an entire list at breakneck speed trying to cram in as much information as possible about each and every one of what can potentially be hundreds of titles if it's a big list. And so, you know, your your book might get 10 to 20 seconds, you know, in front of a buyer or meeting. And then we do rely on a lot of other things. Um, I know myself, you know, I see a lot of books on Twitter and Instagram. I really pay attention to what's coming out from various different publishers. You start to develop your favourite publishers or the publishers you know, publish really interesting things or publishing into a niche area that that you were particularly interested in. So I think there's quite a few different channels. But really for a bricks and mortar bookshop, you know, it's this very traditional thing of a distributor, a sales rep, a buyer. And how much competition is there? It sounds like there's a lot of competition if just one sales rep is running you through 100 titles. Yeah, there, there is a lot of competition. And, you know, Back when I started, which was, you know, a long time ago now, it was it's about 11 years, there used to be a lot more specialist kids sales reps. But I've noticed as the years gone on, there are more general sales reps that um, handle the entire list from adult titles through to books for babies. And so I have noticed that each sales rep has their own particular area of interest that they might actually just naturally hook onto a little bit more. Um, so a lot depends on on that, I think. But there is a lot of competition. So I think really it comes down to actually being having a short and snappy way to have your book pitched um, mm. to a potential buyer. So it's quite competitive, I think. And then at the other end, how long does it stay on the bookshelves? Because they don't stay on there indefinitely. They don't stay on there necessarily till they sell either, do they? No, I mean, that's the other horrifying thing is that, you know, you do know that a book gets a month for its moment in the sun where it's going to be ordered in a stack of like, you know, a big stack. It's going to be face out on a new release table or on a new release shelf. Um, Maybe it'll get two months max if it's selling really strongly. Um, And then it'll be back to sort of maybe two spine out on the shelf. Um, So that window is quite small. I feel like it's a little bit different at readings because we are an independent bookshop and each bookshop has its own type of customer and own particular flavour and also the taste of the staff that work on the shop floor really influence what's displayed, what gets hand sold and recommended. So I feel like we're a bit lucky in that if we really like something, we can we can really keep the spotlight on it for a good three to four months and then we highlight it at the end of the year in our best of lists or our yearly roundups. So I feel really lucky about that and we get to focus really on Australian titles as well. We're really supportive of Australian authors and we get very excited by Australian books. So I I feel like we've got the ability to really focus attention for much longer, especially on books that we regard as offering a really fresh perspective or coming from like an underrepresented voice in publishing. We like to put those books forward. So that sounds as if booksellers, from your perspective, can be quite influential for an author as to how sales go. Again, if I'm an aspiring writer and 
I'm hoping to get a book published down the track. I'm assuming I'm wise to start building up my relationship with my local bookshop in advance of that. Would you agree that that relationship is important? I think that would be a great relationship to foster. In non-COVID times, the best thing you can do when you've got a debut book out is to have a big, lovely book launch with everyone you know there at a local bookshop. I think that that can often lead to the most like personally satisfying results for an author, like emotionally, but also sales-wise as well. Um, you can organise with your local bookshop to do signed copies, um, to do little extra bits of point of sale that maybe not every bookshop would want to have. You can organise displays with them. You can offer like a story time or um, another sort of event. I also think it's a really useful relationship to have because I think a lot of aspiring writers perhaps find it difficult to know about the market that they're trying to write into. And I think maybe the market is not necessarily what is on all aspiring writers' minds when they're writing a book, which is partially as it should be. But I do find that I hear a lot of things that indicate that maybe aspiring writers haven't done as much market research as they should. And it's not that I think that they should be really crass and write very commercially, but it's just something about knowing how to pitch to the right age group, what type of book is kind of common for what sort of age group, what format that book is in, what type of illustrations are common in, in for that age group, what are the word lengths. If you chat to a local bookseller, you can actually find out about all the different publishers out there. That bookseller will actually have an idea about what sort of books that publisher publishes. So when it comes to submitting to a publisher, you actually have a much better idea about where you should try first, where, where your book should be positioned and which publisher is more likely to be receptive to the type of book that you've written. So, because I, I know aspiring writers come into readings all the time and ask us for advice and it's such a good thing to do because we just get out piles of books and show them different publishers um, and, and you know, we've been told by, by writers that that's a really um, helpful thing for them to have done. Are there certain times of the year or <laughs> when you really shouldn't be <laughs> contacted? Please don't please don't do that at Christmas, I would say. I would say from about October to November onwards, you're probably not going to get a bookseller with as much time on their hands as usual. January, February is a great time. Maybe not in school holidays. Yeah, but any other time, you know, I, th I would say that, that we would be more than happy to chat to you. But that's a good point. Understanding kind of the rhythms of the publishing year is helpful as well. And I guess then a, a writer might perhaps at that time of the year be a reader and a supporter of the the bookshop itself and, and the community around a bookshop. Yeah, that's, I guess, another important thing as well is a good thing for um, aspiring writers to do is to build a community before they actually publish. And I feel like we're really lucky in Australia that there's really really supportive young adult and children's book community amongst local authors, even across states, you know, via social media. People really support each other. They go to each other's launches. They retweet each other. They they post on Instagram when they're reading each other's books. And if you already do that work for published authors, if you show published authors that you're really interested in their books and you're buying and and reading their books and talking about them online, when you have a book out, those authors will notice, you know, they'll, they'll have noticed you, they'll be grateful to you and they'll recognise your name and know that you're a really keen reader and supporter of Australian books and they will also naturally send love your way. I think a lot of people cringe with the idea of really kind of 
you know, networking in this really sort of callous, calculated sort of way. And it doesn't have to be like that. It can be a beautiful, natural and organic thing. Most writers are writing because they love books. They genuinely love reading and they love books. So if you just act accordingly, you know, demonstrate your passion, then it'll come back to you for sure. And does that include events, coming along to events? Tell us about your annual event program. My event program is actually even more crowded with COVID times because it's so much easier just to pop into a Zoom book launch um, in any state, really. And, you know, you don't have to get dressed. uh, You don't have to brush your hair. You can eat your dinner while you're doing it. Um, So I've actually been going to a lot of online events and launches. But during non-COVID times, I would also, I guess I'm lucky because I work at readings and I live reasonably locally, you know, a little bit of a bike ride away. So it's very easy to to drop in. And, you know, we're also staff members are asked occasionally to host launches and host events at readings. So I'll often take up some of those duties. We'll share the duties amongst the various different booksellers. It's a really lovely thing to do because... Reading a book is a very solid, can be a very solitary thing. So it's nice to get your little dose of social life through going to book events. And you meet your people at those things. You know, a lot of book readers are very shy and introverted and maybe don't feel as conversational or as naturally um, into social situations. But a book event can be a beautiful way to socialise with other people that have similar personalities. And you also have uh, the readings prizes, don't you, Leanne? So how do authors get their books entered into them? We try to get all eligible books. We try to notice all eligible books ourselves. So we really pay attention every month to what's new and coming out. Publishers that do know that we run those prizes do also kind of let us know what we have coming up. And authors do also contact us to check if they're eligible or not. And if they are eligible, we can then contact their publisher and get them to send in some books. They've been such a wonderful thing to do. There's always such a buzz in our office when we are about to announce a shortlist um, or a winner for any one of the three readings prizes. It's a really enjoyable thing for us to do as well. You've also got the uh, publication Readings Monthly and that that goes out to hundreds of thousands of subscribers. So I'm thinking that authors might be keen to know how they would get their book featured in that. For sure, yeah. We get a lot of contact from authors who are keen and Unfortunately, we use it, usually receive the contact when it's too late for us. Like we uh, we work a, um, a lot in advance on the readings monthly. So I would say that, you know, most decisions are actually made when sales reps and publishers are trying to sell their books into the shop. So usually three to four months beforehand. Um, I would say the best way for an author to do it is to actually speak to your publisher really early on when you're having a book out to let them know that that that's one of your desires, you know, your heartfelt desire to be have a review in the readings monthly and get the publisher to, to put it on their schedule of things that they should approach well in advance because we do often receive that contact and it's, you know, we feel bad but it's often a little bit too late for us to make decisions on that. Would you say that uh, booksellers have a role in shaping national conversations about the issues of a, of the day? I think there's been a lot of discussion this year about how political do bookshops get and some bookshops, and we've been watching this overseas and in Australia, some bookshops take very strong political stands on things and, and others don't. Um, we try to promote 
the books and the interests and the values that our customers hold. Um, and I'd like to think that we're reasonably accurate about that. I really believe in promoting marginalised and underrepresented voices, and I'm kind of unashamed in doing that. And it's my personal interest and passion as well. So I do think I put a lot of effort into that, and perhaps that does shape the customers, but I also feel like there's a lot of genuine interest from customers themselves. They come in and ask us these questions, so we have to be able to answer their questions and so I think it's a very much like a give and take situation. And it sounds like you've just described what you most love about your day job. Is that correct? I, I'd say so, but also just getting to be a big, massive book nerd and not hide it. Perhaps with friends outside the industry, they might be like, okay, Leanne, you've talked about books for a good 20 minutes now. Let's move on to something else. Whereas within readings, you know, you could talk for, about books for eight hours a day and everyone's really into it. So <laughs> that's that's good. But I guess the other thing as well is I just really love having conversations with customers and in particular young customers. There's nothing more refreshing than getting stuck into a good solid conversation with an eight-year-old about what they like and dislike. And they they've got their likes and dislikes run so deep. You just they've got opinions about illustrations, colours, fonts, words types of stories, characters, like, and they'll, they'll let you know all about it if you ask. Well, thanks, Leanne, for uh, talking to us about books and, and your love of bookselling. It's, it's been really valuable having your thoughts and insights. Oh, thank you so much for your excellent questions. I think booksellers are a little bit starved to get interviewed. We've got this mysterious job that we don't get asked about very often. So it's just such a pleasure to have uh, somebody so interested and ask so many detailed questions about a mysterious job. That was Leanne Hall from Readings Books in Melbourne. Hi, my name is Sasha Wosley, and I'm one of the authors who contributed to the book How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia. My next book is Spring Clean for the Peach Queen, out in April 2021. Today I'm providing you with my best tip for aspiring writers, and here it is. If you get writer's block partway through a work, it's probably time to sit down and do some behind-the-scenes work. This is because you've probably hit a plot or character problem. You need to work out how to move logically to the next plot point or do some character work to better understand your character's motivations. It's time for the comic chameleon, Armel Davies, to put us through our editorial paces. Armel, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Yourselves? Good. What's your topic this week? Well, today I chose the topic of punctuation and symbols because I'm not just a word nerd, but a lover of any and all forms of communication. And I particularly love punctuation and symbols for the way that they can communicate complex ideas with economy and style. Like a lot of things to do with language, we tend to think that punctuation is static and permanent, like it's been ordained by a higher power. But the system that we use today was only really put into common usage in the 15th century uh, with the advent of the printing press, uh, when letter forms were simplified and reading was made more widely accessible. So people needed a system to understand sentence structure quickly while they were reading in their heads. So what was there before that, comma? 
Well, various systems of punctuation came and went. The very first being a system of dots used by the Greek librarian Aristophanes of Byzantium in the third century BC to show various pause lengths. Before that, all words in written text ran together with no word spaces or capital letters to distinguish between them at all. That sounds like a nightmare. So what what, yeah. uh, what horrible quiz question have you devised for us out of punctuation? Well, here we go. Which of the following is not a punctuation mark or other symbol used in writing? Is it A, the enterobang, B, the octothorpe, or C, the contrapunct? I, uh, I have a passing acquaintance with the enterobang. Are you saying... It's never used or it's never, it, it just doesn't exist at all? Yeah, that it just doesn't exist at okay. all. Okay. So I'm thinking the interrobang is the, the one that's the combination of the question mark and the exclamation mark. The octothorpe rings a bell, but I'm not sure what bell it's ringing. Do you have any thoughts, Claire? I think number C. What was number C? That to me rings a bell. That was the contrapunct. Contrapunct. Mm, that sort of sounds... Like it rings a bell, but then she could have just put a few things together. Oh, no. I'll back myself and I'm going to rule out B, Octo, what's the face? Octothorpe. Well, I guess I feel obliged to go with B, but I have a horrible feeling that you're right and it's a contrapunct. Yeah, it sounds suspicious, doesn't it? Maybe ask, can I swap mine? Maybe I'll go C. You did go C. Well, oh, did I go C? I thought I went B. Okay, let's I'm go going C. the Octopunk and Claire's going the... Contra. You you said you're going the octopunk. <laughs> That's definitely not one. <laughs> I've just made up a fourth. All of the <laughs> Can I go the octopunt? Because <laughs> <Sure. laughs> I'm pretty Wait, sure so that doesn't answer exist. as well. <laughs> I'm going number C. I'm going letter C. And I'm going B. All right. Well, Claire is correct again. Oh. Yes. So go on, what are they? Well, Georgia is quite right. The interrobang is a combination of a question mark and an exclamation mark over a single point. Um, and it was invented by an American advertising executive in the 1960s to convey incredulity or ask a question in an excited manner or even a rhetorical question and because it, he thought it was more economical and aesthetically pleasing to use on billboards instead of separate question and exclamation marks. But it never really took off, did it? I'm guessing since it's not there. Uh... No, it didn't at all. Uh, it's not very widely used anymore, but it was used in a federal court judgment in Australia in 2018. So you can look it up and see it there on the internet. <laughs> what was it used for? What was the sentence? Uh, or It was a defamation case between Mark Latham and Osman Faruqi and it was in the opening address. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was some general musings on the law. So you can go and look it up if you want to see it. All right, so the octopunk, no, the octothorpe, sorry. The octothorpe is actually just another name for the hash symbol or pound sign. Of course. uh, Which has a lot of other names as well. The name Octothorpe was created in the 1960s as well by a company called Bell Labs, which developed the touchtone telephone. And it was reportedly formed by combining Octo for the eight points of the mark and Thorpe after Jim Thorpe, who was the first Native American to win a gold medal at an Olympic Games. The obvious combination. 
But most I just, people actually know the hash symbol now as a hashtag because of Twitter. And it's also used to denote ordinal numbers or sometimes things like sizes or types, like a number two pencil, for example. Yeah. I remember I remember that little button on the touch phone back in the eighties. When we first got touch phones, we were telling um, Chloe the other day, we were describing how you used to be able to phone people and you'd have to go round the circle. Yeah. I've seen it in the movies. <clears throat> You've seen it in the movies. Excellent. It took about <laughs> so much for emergencies. It took about half an hour to phone anyone. Are you finding hashtags or octothorps coming up in your manuscripts more these days? Yeah, we do have some hashtags in manuscripts. Uh, for example, recently we had me too, hashtag me too. So you have to check that the hashtag is correct against Twitter and make sure it's capitalised correctly, etc. So the old contrapunct, punk? Punked, yeah. Punked. Is this some devious thing you've come up with? Yeah, I just made it up. I just combined two words that sounded like they could possibly be punctuation and obviously it worked. It certainly tricked the editor in the room here. Thanks so much, Amel. Thanks, Comma Chameleon. That was to the point as always. Can't wait to see what she comes up with next time. And speaking of next time, I'm really excited to have two sales reps on the podcast. I don't think it's ever been done before. Jane Parkhill and Gavin Burbage of Penguin Random House will be joining us to talk about how you get, how they get your published book into bookshops. It was great to have you with us today on the How to Be an Author podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite app so you never miss an episode. To discuss anything raised on today's podcast, join us on the How to Be an Author in Australia Facebook group. You'll be able to discuss the ins and outs of writing with other writers and with us, along with many of the contributors to the book Georgia wrote with Deborah Hun. How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia is available from fremantlepress.com.au and at all good bookstores. See you next time.